0: And Lord, thank you for the rain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's amazing. One good rain and my yard's greened up. Like, it was, I mean, even the cactus were dying in my yard. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who here is a covenant partner of First Presbyterian Church? Raise your hand. I'm not. I can't be. I'm ordained. I'm a member of the Presbytery. Um, have you ever wondered why we have that sort of strange term, covenant Partner rather than member? Used to be. Did we just want to be not like our former denomination? Because they said member. So we're... Let me tell you a story because it, it's pertinent to what we're going to be talking about this morning from the 10th chapter of Chris Krug's book, The Crisis of Discipleship, where he wants to talk us to understand that being a disciple is not just a person that's made a commitment to Christ, intellectual assent to the gospel. Uh, maybe a member of a church, but he really wants us to move past that to seeing uh, being a disciple as being a way of life. It's not something you do on Sunday and you do your other thing during the week, but it's a 24-7, 365, might call it a journey, uh, way. Jesus says, I am the way. That's another word for road or path or journey. So um, let me tell you how that term covenant partner came to be. Uh, it goes back to 2008. Our, there were many at that time. There were many of our churches leaving our former denomination for what's known as the uh, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which Chris Scruggs is an ordained pastor in that denomination, and um, that set off alarm bells finally in our former denominations headquarters and so they came out the General Assembly came out with a a thing that basically slammed the door that nobody else could go into the EPC anymore because they were too narrow because they only had the Westminster Confession and remember in our former denomination we had a book of confessions all of them good Uh, I had no objection to any of them but I, I voted against reunion with the Northern Church one of the reasons was because of that book of confessions, even though I was fully believed all of them. But I thought, you know, if you have 12 confessions, you really have none. And I was, that was my fear, and that's kind of what happened. Um, so anyway, they said the EPC is too narrow, and they slammed the door. Now, there are many of us, myself, I, I did everything I could to keep my church in Baltimore in the Peace USA, and the same thing at Highland Park Pres in Dallas. I got a lot of criticism for that, but I thought it was too soon to leave and this thing's gonna turn around. But in 2008, when that door slammed, um, eight of us met in my office in Dallas saying, there's now no exit ramp out of this denomination. What are we gonna do? And we met for three days and we threw out a whole bunch of different ideas. Well, eco emerged from that. But one of the things that we said is, hey, if we got an opportunity to get out and create something new, we don't want to just create another denomination with all the denominational bureaucratic machinery and all that. Let's do something different. So if you look at the title of our denomination, it's not just eco. Anybody know what the O stands for? Order. If you know anything about orders, like the Benedictine order, uh, in fact, you can be a Benedictine as a Presbyterian. Anybody can join as a commitment to Christ, and you agree to follow the Benedictine rules. And so it's a way of life. So we we started thinking about, let's not just have a denomination with members, because like most denominations, a lot of people join, but they really are not committed. We want to be more serious about this and create a covenant order that people agree that if I'm going to join this thing, I'm going to commit to living a certain way. Now, we don't have covenant order police that go around and follow you around to make sure, so I'm sure there are plenty of people that are not doing that, but the attempt was to try to get people to understand that Following Christ is, is about a way of life, not just joining a church. That's, that's where covenant order, covenant partner came from. You're agreeing to partner in, with this covenant between God and his people and living a certain way. And uh, none of us do that perfectly. I hope you're all trying to do that, but that's where the term comes from. So being a disciple, Chris would want us to know, is that it's being on a journey, a way of life. Uh, Jesus says, I am the way. Now, I'm going to read a very controversial piece of scripture to you. Uh, It's very controversial because this is Jesus talking, and it sounds very harsh, but it gets to the heart of what being a disciple is all about. This comes from Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. This is Jesus speaking, not me. his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Ooh, man, Jesus. What happened to General Jesus, meek and mild? That's, you won't find him in the Gospels. That's a myth. What's Jesus saying here? Is he mean? Is he trying to break up families? No. He's trying to get across a point What's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, as neighbor yourself. But the point Jesus is making here is that, you know, if you're really going to follow me and take up your cross, that might just pit you against some people that are very close to you. Family even. When I was uh, finishing my master's at Baylor Med School in Houston, I went to what was called the Rice Christian Fellowship on Friday nights. And one night, they had a speaker. uh, Her name was Amy Rabinovitz. Yes, she was Irish. (laughs) And uh, Amy told her story. She worked, and I don't know if she's retired now, but she worked her whole career with Jews for Jesus. These are... Jews that have come to know Christ and they have a ministry trying to bring other Jews to Christ. Well, she told a story when she became a Christian. I can't remember exactly how she became a Christian, but I remember when her parents found out about it, and they were Orthodox Jews, they held a funeral for her. An Orthodox Jewish funeral and declared her to be dead. And I remember in her story saying, I missed my parents. One day, I just went to their home in Houston, knocked on the door. Her mother opened the door, and she said, Mom, I just wanted to see you. I'm home. Amy. And her mother looked at her and said, I'm sorry. We have no daughter. Our daughter is dead. And closed the door. Now, um, to bring it a little bit closer to home, When I was a youth minister here, every year I discipled two adults on my youth team. And then I'd always pick a senior high boy and disciple them. I'd meet with them once a week, usually at Taco Cabana, and I would usually take them through Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. One year I was doing this with a a kid. He was active in the youth group. I played football. And one day we met on our breakfast meeting, and he just broke down crying. He was the son of uh, two elders. His mother was an elder and his father was an elder. And I said to him, what's going on? He said, last night at the dinner table, I told my parents how committed I am to Christ above everything. And they both looked at me and sternly said, We don't talk about things like that at the dinner table. Be quiet. These are elders in this congregation. And he paid a price for that. Um, Amy Rabinovitz paid a price. And sometimes this journey we're on will set us at odds with friends, employers, Um, and this is a common thing in various parts of the world right now um, so f- taking up your cross is heavy duty stuff now Chris um, says that a disciple needs to learn the way of Christ what does that mean He says new Christians are new creations babes in Christ and just like you know when you and I are born we don't know how to feed ourselves we don't know how we don't know, what are these green things with trunks? and We have to learn. We're learning all the time as a kid. And the same thing when you're a Christian. When you accept Christ, that's not the end of your journey. That's just the beginning. And uh, when people say to me, Ron, I'm not a theologian, I always say, yeah, you are. Everybody's a theologian. The question is, are you going to be a good one or a bad one? And my mentor in seminary, John Leith, he used to always say, bad theology always hurts people. And so he said to us who are becoming pastors, you better learn good theology and teach your people to become theologians and learn good the- theology, or else they'll wind up hurting each other and people outside the church. So all of us ought to be on a journey to learn good theology. Disciple means learner. Being a disciple was, you go to school. It's a way of life. You you never graduate from this school. Well, you do graduate, but um, that's what's another story. Um, Just as children have to be taught to become functional adults, new believers must be taught to obey all I've commanded you. That's why every time we uh, have a new member class, um, I'm always looking, who are the professions of faith? And I've told our Staff. I said, those are the people you need to get somebody walking with them and helping them to understand what being a Christian is all about. Uh, if you wanted to be a plumber, you got to apprentice yourself and you work with the plumber, you watch what he does or she does, and you learn how to do plumbing. It's no different than being a follower of Christ. So it's a process, not a one time event. And then Chris says, Christianity is a way of wisdom, this way is a way, way of wisdom and love. Ordinary Christians live out their day-to-day lives in an extraordinary way, embodying the wisdom and love of God. Those, he wants us to know that those are the two things that we really carry with us on this journey. Our, our desire, we should want to be as wise as we can and as loving as we can. Now, there's a difference between being wise and smart. Um, really wise, if you're smart, doesn't mean you're wise. You're wise when you learn how to employ your smartness uh, in a good way. I hate to bring this guy, when I was a junior in high school, I took earth science and our teacher was a PhD. Now, how many of you had PhD faculty in your high school? There was a reason why he had a Ph.D. but was teaching in high school. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Every day for the entire year, there was a guy in our class, would go up and put, he had this tall stool that he would sit on. And every day, this kid in our class would put a tack on the stool. And he would sit down and go, Whoa! And we'd all laugh. The next day, Whoa! he would never check. He had a Ph.D. He was smart. He knew a lot about earth science, but he was not very wise. I remember one day, um, he was in the room, it was between classes, and a bunch of us got together and we pennied him into the room. You, know, you can stick pennies around the edge of the door, and uh, the day before, days before cell <laughs> phone, we played all kinds of pranks on him, and he, he was just, he was not very wise. He just did not know how to handle things. So we were, we were awful. contrast this PhD with James. James, an African-American custodian at my seminary in Richmond, Union Theological Seminary. And James never went past the third grade. He had six kids. He put all six of them through college. And James was the unofficial chaplain of the whole seminary. He was the one that professors went to when they were in crisis And he was such a godly, wise man. Um, And it's just, he just reeked of wisdom rooted in Christ. So, um, being a disciple is being wise, but it's also being in love, being in love with Christ. You can be intellectually affirming of Christ. You can like Christ. You can think he's the greatest guy ever lived, But that's that's not the goal of being a Christian. The goal of being a Christian is to fall in love with this guy. Um, Above everything else, when I premaritally counsel couples, I always talk to them about, you know, she can't be the number one thing in your life. And he can't be the number one thing in your life. God didn't, that's an unfair thing to expect your spouse to bear the weight of something only God can bear. God's got to be number one. And I always draw this diagram with Christ up here and husband over here, wife over here. And I said, your goal as a couple ought to be, first of all, to pursue your love relationship with Christ. And watch what happens when you do that and I draw the lines, the lines converge. If you make loving your wife the number one thing or loving your husband the number one thing, that doesn't work. Do you remember that campaign, it was on billboards, maybe 15 years ago, I Am Second? And I remember, we were all around Dallas, I don't know if it was here, and there were sports stars and film actors and stuff. I am second. And I used to see this and go, oh, no, 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 no. Um, the big thing was, you know, I'm not first in my life. God is. Well, you're not even supposed to be second in your life. Other people are supposed to be second. Gale Sayers, I, I think he was the greatest running back ever in the NFL. The guy was fast. Had unbel- he could stop on a dime. And um, my favorite Gale Sayers quote is, AstroTurf came into being. They said, what do you think about it? He said, if if cows don't eat it, I don't want to play on it. But he, he wrote an autobiography. I got snowed in, in the Atlanta airport one going home for Christmas from uh, I guess it was from Trinity. And I uh, spent the night in the airport, so I went to the bookstore and I bought his autobiography. You no, know it's titled I Am Third. Gail's committed Christian, and you know he had it all right. God then family and friends, then myself. I am third. So this love thing, Jesus will not accept second place in your life and mine. You've seen those bumper stickers, God is my co-pilot. That is bad theology. That is bad theology. Like, hey, God, glad to have you aboard here. Come you know, you can watch me fly this plane. And I saw a bumper sticker for real on a car. that said, if God is your co-pilot, Move over. He will not occupy a second place. So, being a disciple is and being in love with your companion on this journey, and I've said it in here before, uh, I really believe the underlying uh, theme of the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that you and I can make any journey if we have the right companion. You know, little hobbits, they were not very smart, they're not very wise, they're not strong. But they have the right companions that help to make this journey through all kinds of ups and downs. Well, on our journey, this way, as a disciple, we have the Companion with a capital C. Remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There are times in your life and mine when God seems far away, or maybe seems absent. That's called the deus absconditus. It looks like God has absconded and gone away. That is not in line with reality. Reality is, Jesus says, I am with you always. Now, from our fallen, sinful perspective, uh, the great hymn says, we, we, uh, how does it go? Uh, it's, it's only our, our sin that blinds us from seeing your reality. So, there are times when God seems absent, but he's not. And... Chris says, the Christian lifestyle is not radical. I think it is. (laughs) But it is radically different from the lifestyle of the world. Does anybody know what the word radical literally means? Can you think of a vegetable that has a similar? A radish. Root. Radical doesn't mean burn everything down. It means get to the root of what reality is all about. So I think the Christian faith is very radical. It says, go to the root. The root is Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created everything. And you start there, and, well, if there is a God, can he be known? The Bible says yes. If so, does he care about us? Yes. And the Bible goes on to say, in fact, he invites you. He's in love with you. And it's his love that elicits this love from us. You don't have to drum up a love for God. God's love will elicit love from you and me if we really get to know him. And so becoming people of the way, what does that mean? Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law but to complete it. You know, as Christians, we don't throw the law out. Paul is adamant in saying the law cannot save anybody. Uh, Jews still believe that by keeping certain laws, that you kind of climb the ladder to your salvation. Um, During the Reformation, in fact, some Roman Catholics sort of believe that too. Mormons do. Muslims do. Authentic Christian faith turns that upside down, but it doesn't throw out the law. We find the law fulfilled in Christ. What the law says we're to do, we can't do. We can't do it perfectly. God says the bar is this high. It's purity, holiness, perfection. Well, you can't jump that bar. Guess what? Jesus jumped it for you. He fulfills the law. So we don't have to try to earn our salvation, but we practice the law out of thankfulness. You know, the Ten Commandments kind of sum up the law. And a lot of people say, well, that looks like a wet blanket on humanity's party. Until you understand what the, the purpose of the Ten Commandments was when they were going into the promised land, they were going to be surrounded on every side, just like Israel is right now, with uh, pagan nations who want to destroy them. And God's saying, if you live like this, these are the guardrails that'll help you make it on the journey. And that's, you know, there are three parts to the Old Testament law. There's the sacrificial law, the sacrifices of all the animals and everything. There's the uh, ceremonial law, feast days and rituals, and the moral law. Now, when Jesus came, we don't have to do the ceremonial law anymore or the sacrificial law. Jesus is the once-for-all sufficient, perfect sacrifice. But he, the moral law still stands, and Jesus is the epitome of that. And uh, now Calvin and Luther came along in the Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church had kind of deviated away from that and was back toward you know, works righteousness, keeping the law's way to salvation. And Calvin particularly said there there are three purposes to the law. And it's important that you and I understand this. He said the first purpose is that it's like a mirror. We hold it up in front of our lives and it convicts us of our sin. Um, Who here has kept the Ten Commandments? (laughs) Nobody. Uh, Nobody. It's not so much you and I break the Ten Commandments, it's they break us. And you can try to live the Ten Commandments with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, but you can't jump that bar. You can't do it. I've said this before, and I find it humorous. People come to me and say, well, I don't believe Jesus was God, but I think he was a great man, and I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, they've never read the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? It's not just the Beatitudes, it's three chapters. And the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is the same as the Ten Commandments. To frustrate the total heck out of you and me till we finally tear our hair out and go, I can't do this, I need help. Then you figured it out, the purpose of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you'll want a savior. That's, that's the purpose. That's the first purpose. It's a mirror, holds up, and shows us our sinfulness. Secondly, it's to frustrate the heck out of us, like I just said, to the point where we cry out, I need a savior. And the third purpose is kind of guardrails for the living, or keeping this society civil around us. And so that's one of my, uh, as what's happening now in the United States, and really the West, and I'm not arguing for a theocracy, but our country was founded on Judaic Christian principle, the moral law that's, tr- go to the Supreme Court building, and it's there inscribed all around the outside. And, um, of oh, the guy, I'm blanking on the guy's name, who wrote Democracy in America from France. de to Tocqueville. If you've ever read that book, it's a, it's a great read. He, he's over here in the 1840s, and he's so impressed with the morality of America. He said, what makes America great is it's good, and what makes it good is it's godly. The people are trying to live in a godly way. And he said, should they ever cease to be godly, they will no longer be good, and America will never no longer be great. Guess what? we're there. We're there. Can we go back? I don't know. You can go back. I can go back by being a disciple, being on the way with Christ. That may cause problems for you, employers, friends. um, Christians are a great threat. I saw a former uh, presidential candidate Said that what we're doing in this class right now, we should be taken and reprogrammed, and and put in a camp. Oh, I won't name the Babylon B. If you don't get the Babylon B, it's free. Just Google Babylon B, hit subscribe, and every day you'll get you'll it'll make you laugh and make you cry. And I guess it was yesterday's. It said. Uh, Headline uh, Woman escapes from old folks' home and says half of America needs to be reprogrammed. Okay. It's a satire website. Yeah, it's a satire. It takes bitter truths and makes funny. And you know, um, Luther said the one thing that Satan can't stand is to be mocked. So, I tell people the way you go through this culture of darkness and death and tyranny and stupidity that we're going through, if you take it too seriously, you'll go nuts. So, you got to develop a sense of dark humor and look for the humor. In it. I mean, some of this stuff's hilarious, what's going on. I mean, it's hurtful and hateful, but if you become, <clears throat> then Satan wins. So we got to keep a Christian sense of humor. The Babylon B will help you do that. Did you see the cover of the New Yorker with all the candidates running and they all had walkers? <laughs> 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 <I can relate. laughs> yeah. And Chris says, ba- we go back to the basic rule and we've already talked about this. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself, on these hang all the law. I remember <laughs> introductory preaching class in seminary. We had to preach a sermon at the end. And one of our students took, King James Version says, on these hang the law and the prophets. And this guy was a real 1960s kind of uh, anarchist. And he just preached on the phrase, Hang the law and the prophets. (laughs) And I remember our professor saying, that is a great example of the misuse of Scripture and kind of took him to tax on Now, on these two commandments, hang everything. Love the Lord your God. Love, not intellectual assent only or having a secondhand relationship. It's being in love. And if you, you know, if you were... um, I read a story of World War II, and these two guys from West Virginia, they grew up together, they enlisted in the army after Pearl Harbor. They got in the same division, and they were, I forget what battle it was, and they got, uh, one of them got shot, and he was out there in no man's land. And so his, his and the commander said, we got to get out of here, we got to leave the wounded alone. And he said, I'm not doing that. And he crawled 300 yards on his belly goddess friend drugging back and the friend lived and then he got hit with shrapnel and died. You don't think that friend loved his friend? <laughs> Both of them loved each other. That's the kind of relationship we're called to have. When Jesus says, take up your cross, that doesn't mean go to James Avery and get a nice piece of jewelry. <laughs> it means, are you willing to die for me? If not, you haven't quite gotten to the point of being a disciple yet. That's tough language. It's true, and there are Christians today, all around the world, that are having to make that decision. Um, And as persecution rises here in the United States, I'm not trying to be chicken little, but I never thought I'd see in my lifetime what we're seeing now. And um, every day I've started praying now, okay, Lord, it's October 8th. 2023, I make the decision today to die for you should that time come. I'm not going to make it in the heat of the moment. I'm making it now. So if that heat moment ever comes, I won't have to go. My uh, favorite story about making that decision is the Armenian genocide toward the end of World War I in Turkey when uh, the Turks decided that the Armenians were all Christians. And the Turks were Muslim. They decided, World War I's a convenient time to do some genocide. So over a million Armenians were killed. And here's how they did it. They dug with bulldozers, big trenches, lined the Armenians up, men, women, and children. And the Turks would say, we're going to march down the aisle. We're going to stick a gun under your chin. And you can say one of two things. You can say Jesus or Allah. If you say Allah, we will let you walk free. If you say Jesus, we're going to pull the trigger. Out of that over, it's about 1.2 million. How many defections do you think there were? Imagine you're an eight-year-old boy and your father's next to you. and You see the gun under your father's chin and the father says, Jesus, boom. Now, when I was eight years old, I would probably going, let's see, Uh, Lord, Lord, you know, I really love you. I'm more, I'm, you know, more used to you alive than dead. I'll just go like this and say, Allah, and then I'll serve you. There was not one break in the ranks. Jesus, 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 Jesus. So anyway, they had to make that decision. So, we're called on this journey to live as salt and light under grace. Light, we shine with the wisdom of God and we flavor the world with God's love as we embody the wisdom and love that God shared in Christ. God knows we cannot love him and others unconditionally except by the power of his grace. Let's talk about grace a little bit. What, what does grace mean? We say it all the time, we sing amazing grace. undeserved favor we don't deserve God's favor in any form uh, we're totally abject sinners all bound for hell we can't get out of that pit anybody else have a definition of grace getting what you don't deserve none of us deserve eternal life so it's not only not getting what you do deserve but what you don 't it 's getting what you don 't deserve and not getting what oh okay, you know right. here 's the way I like to remember it as an acronym god 's riches at christ 's expense we get god 's riches, but it 's nothing we did to earn or merit those it all comes at christ 's expense and uh for by grace we are saved through faith. And yet, I find a lot of people who are on the road of discipleship who still think, hmm, I think walking this road of discipleship is earning me points. Have you ever wondered why Jehovah's Witnesses are so adamant about walking around knocking on doors? I used to admire them. I thought, oh, you know, I wish we had their evangelistic spirit. They don't have an evangelistic spirit. First of all, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there's only 144,000 people saved. So why would you want somebody else to come to Jehovah and maybe nudge you out? So it's not that. I had a woman in my church in Baltimore join Central Press. She came out of Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, would you sit down with me and tell me all about Jehovah's Witnesses? You know, if you drive by one of their kingdom halls, have you ever noticed there are no windows? in any jehovah's that architecturally says a lot about their faith. They're closed. <laughs> they don't have any vision looking out and they don't want anybody looking in. So if there's only 144,000 saved, why would you knock on the door and try to get more people in there to Here's why they do it. They believe they get spiritual points for every door they knock on. And it doesn't matter if you take their literature or come a JW or not, they get credit, and that credit adds up to the possibility of them being one of the 144,000. So my admiration for them went, uh, they do it to try to save themselves by knocking on doors. They're earning it. There are really only two world religions, only two. There's the gospel of grace and everything else. Name your religion. It's all about humanity trying somehow to get up to God. Christian faith, about God coming down to where we are, even taking the form of a servant, even unto death on a cross. So it's all at Christ's expense. I got in a conversation with a Mormon elder one time was the head of a stake that's a local congregation I said can we talk about salvation he said sure and I said do you believe that you're saved by Jesus death on the cross yes (coughs) but (laughs) always a but yes but as I came at it from different angles it was always yes but and so I said, you don't believe Jesus' death on the cross was totally sufficient. Well, we didn't want to come right out and say that, but, but yeah. <laughs> and, and yet there's a lot of Christians who down deep inside. See, that's Satan's default thing in you and me. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's something you got to do to gain this, to merit it. I'll just come clean with you. I've been a Christian for... 63 years. I still want to get to heaven and go, I'm here. And I want God to say, oh, man, I'm so proud of you. You're here because here's what you did. You pastor these churches. You disciple these people. No, no. We're all, we got all of us got a little bit that prodigal son in us. You know, he comes home and he's telling the father, you know, I'll become your slave. I'll do that. And the father's not even listening to him. Father's said. Kill the calf. Let's have a party. And the son's kind of, wait a minute, I'm telling you, why I deserve to come back home? No, you don't deserve to come back home. None of us deserve eternal life. It's free gift. Yeah, you got to accept it, just like if I offer you a gift, you can't go like this. You turn your back on it and you're not going to get it. So, You know, one of the most meaningful parts of the Apostles' Creed to me it's, is he descended into hell. That sounds kind of eerie and rare. And if you remember our old hymn books, the Maroon hymn book, it had an asterisk by that phrase. And at the bottom of the page, it said, some churches omit this. Fortunately, our church did. Because some people were just turned off by the idea that Christ somehow went to hell. Man, that's the best news in the creed. That means he went there so you don't have to. Whatever hell is, Christ slammed the door and nailed it shut. So that is not even a slight possibility for you and me. Um, So, And think of, I thought hell was eternal. Well, this is where Christ being fully God comes in. He paid the infinite sacrifice to cover all of our sin. And and then something happened. I think the descent into hell happened on the cross when Christ said, it is finished. He somehow cosmically bore the sin of the entire world. And and I can't imagine the, the spiritual cosmic depth of pain that he went through. But it far exceeds what any human being will experience in hell, whatever it is, as horrible as it is. So, totally at Christ's expense, we're given this free gift. It's free for the taking. But it demands a love relationship. Demand demands not the right You can't demand somebody to fall in love. But it, it, you can say, yeah, I, I want that but it also means if you understand that, you're going to fall head over heels. In life. He crawled across the battlefield, drug you back, and got hit with a piece of shrapnel, and you lived and he died. Grace. All of grace. Central means by which grace is lived out in human life. Now, Chris has uh, five things there. I want to boil it down to three things, uh, and it includes all these. Um, In the Reformed faith, we talk about the three ordinary means of grace. I'm sorry, we don't talk about it anymore. we used to in the old days. Now it's not cool, but I have started talking about it all the time. I'm going to do a men's retreat for First President Amarillo about two weeks. We're going to zero in on the three ordinary means of grace. Because if you don't get these, you don't have the equipment you need to make the journey. You don't have the bullets in your gun to wage a spiritual warfare. You really are not going to be very effective or faithful trying to follow Christ without practicing the three ordinary means of grace. There's nothing exotic about being a Christian, nothing esoteric. Here's what they are. And I've said them in here before, so bear with me, but I'm going to hammer this home to Christians till the day I die. Prayer, the word, and the sacrament. Reformed theology says those are the three ordinary means of grace that relationship, love relationship that we have with Christ. But here's how you practice this. First is prayer. Prayer is simply conversation with God. That's a part of a relationship. Psychologists tell us that marriages are stronger the more you communicate with each other. If you don't talk to your spouse, the marriage goes nowhere. The more you talk to somebody in a friend relationship, the deeper the friendship goes. So... Prayer, um, but not just, you know, a, a, a rote prayer at the beginning of the day or something. I like to say the Christian way of discipleship should, should, should be a running conversation with God all day long. God's interested, believe it or not, in every facet of your life. He's just as interested in what you're doing at 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon as he is you sitting in a Sunday school class. He's just as interested. He wants to know all about your life. I don't think you can bring anything before God that he'll go, oh, that's trivial. If he knows the amount of hairs on your head, which seems to be pretty trivial to me, he probably is interested in some of the things that I probably wouldn't be interested in your life. But uh, this running conversation with God, the best book on prayer I've ever read, I've said in here before, say it again, Dick Ryan, a former pastor here, put me onto it. It's called The The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. Easy to read. It's Brother Lawrence's letters conversing with this woman. He's a monk in a monastery. He has a job. He works in the kitchen. They have orders of the day where they stop and they go into the chapel and they sing and pray and chant. And and Brother Lawrence happened across the Great Commission and the part of it where Christ says, Remember, I am with you always. And he started pondering that. I said, well then, if he's with me, that means he's with me in the kitchen while I'm chopping vegetables. So I really don't need to wait till the order of the day to talk to him. So he brings Christ into his kitchen work. And this becomes radical. I mean, down to the root. And it gets out, and people are coming from all over to hear about this radical thing, talking to Christ throughout the day. Well, I think that's what genuine prayer is all about. And then the second of the three ordinary means of grace is the Word. That's where God speaks back to you and me. And I know I sound like a Johnny OneNote, but I believe it. If you're not reading through the Bible every year, you're going out into that culture of darkness, death, tyranny, and stupidity unarmed. And not only unarmed, you're going to be a sucker for what's being sold out there. If you're not anchored, and this is going oh, everything out there is a crock according to this. If you're not having that, and a 20 minute sermon on Sunday ain't going to balance out what you're hearing out there, and you're being, and I'm being seduced by all the time. And it sounds good, some of it. In fact, some of the stuff that five years ago would sound crazy to us, we're now going, well, that sounds kind of good. Because we're all being desensitized to reality with a capital R. So we've got to get radical and go back to the root. Here's where you find the root. And the last of three ordinary means of grace is the Lord's Supper. And I always like to put a slash worship. If This is why it's important for weekly worship, not so that Bob feels better. He's looking at less wood out there. Um, but again, worship and receiving the sacrament. You know, last Sunday we celebrated communion. And I always pray, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And I believe as Reformed theology believes that this is a means of grace that somehow in that sacrament something happens in our relationship with Christ. And that's all I can tell you. I I can't. Thomas Aquinas tried to philosophically say well these elements actually become the body and blood of Christ so you're ingesting Christ which led to seriously theological debates about whether church mice were saved because they would break into the sacristy where the consecrated host from the previous week was and they'd eat the wafers and the Roman Catholic idea that well, you ingest this grace and it saves you. Are these mice going to be in heaven? Uh, (laughs) I hope there's mice in heaven, but I don't think that's how they're going to get there. But um, then Luther said, well, that's that's not right. He came up with the consubstantiation that the presence of Christ is somehow in and around and underneath the elements, whatever that means. Calvin stepped forward and said, you know, guys, this is a mystery far greater than the human mind can comprehend. So we philosophically ought not to try to define how Christ is present. So I like the Calvin way, is that we believe the real presence. Something happens in that sacrament. We come as close to the Lord Jesus Christ, this side of eternity, that we can. Now I say all that, and I think about that every time I'm going to take communion. And then I do it, and it just tastes like a little piece of cracker and grape juice, and and yet, same time, I say, somehow, Lord, something's happening here. And if we really believed that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, then why don't we have it every week? We should want more grace to help us for the journey. So, we'll talk about that another time. But you can't give me a biblical reason why we shouldn't have communion every Sunday. Okay. Um, Baptism is also a sacrament that's uh, part of our being sealed in Christ. In Christ-centered worship, confession, works of love. By the way, confession, I think we threw something some of the baby out with the bathwater during the Reformation. In James it says, confess your sins to one another. Have you ever committed a sin and you were genuinely repentant and you asked God to forgive you, but then you shared it with a friend, and suddenly you, you felt even more forgiven? See, I think that's the way God built us, that we're to confess our sins communally. That doesn't mean jump up in worship and say, here's what I did this week. You know, It's appropriate ways to do that. Uh, Protestants, we've replaced the confessional with pastoral counseling. So people go to the pastor, and we don't call it confession, but it's what it is a lot of times. There's a healthiness. I've always been a part of a covenant group with other pastors or whoever have served, and, and we tried to be as real as possible as we could. My group in Baltimore, we had four que- no, five questions we asked each other every time we met, then a sixth question. Sixth question was, did I lie to you about anything I've said in the first five questions? There were times when I wanted to sin, but I knew I was going to have to answer that sixth question next week with my buddies and I didn't sing <laughs> uh, then there were times I did But uh, so the ordinary means of grace and here's some other thing and this is another take on it Bible study, prayer, other disciplines important, important, study the scriptures that's the word, pray, prayer works of love always with the goal of becoming more Christ-like and if you Faithfully practice the three ordinary means of grace. Your relationship with Christ is going to grow deeper and stronger. And guess what? You start acting like who you hang around with. Just like you tell your kids, don't hang around with that group. If you spend time really entering into a relationship with Christ, it probably is going to show. You're probably not going to be aware of it, but other people will. They'll start coming to you and saying, you know, what's different about you? Tell me about it. Um, ambassadors of Christ walk the walk. You know, we talk about talking the talk, but walking the walk. I'll close with this story. Uh, my pre- preaching professor in seminary was Welford Hobby. He was a pastor in Stanton, Virginia uh, during the 50s and 60s when the civil rights movement was cranking up. And Dr. Hobby was just a, he taught us expository preaching. He said, you know, the Bible's the word of God. Let the scriptures take you where they want to go not what you think the congregation needs to hear. And he, of course, everything was segregated in Stanton, Virginia in the 50s and 60s, and he was not a political guy. He said, I I never preached integration, but every time the Bible talked about all nations and tribes and tongues, I would say segregation's wrong, and this church is going to be integrated. Anybody can come to this church he had crosses burned on his front lawn. His kids were threatened. And I remember thinking, what if I had been Welford Hobby? You know, I've been, I've been tempted to preach a series on the flowers of the Old Testament or something, not get into But Welford did. And he said, one day I got a call from a black pastor in town. The pastor said, Hobby? We African-American pastors are really proud of you. You're the only white pastor in this town preaching that all people ought to, you know, you're, everybody's welcome to your church. You're the only one. You know how to talk the talk. But can you walk the walk? He said there's going to be a march in Selma, Alabama next month. I'm going. Would you come with me and walk with me? And Walford Hobbies said, gosh, I've already had crosses burned on my lawn. My kids are threatened." He said, I got down on my knees. I prayed about it. I picked up the phone and said, I'm with you. And he walked in that. And again, he was not a political liberal or rabble rouser. He was radical. He said, this forced me. I can't talk about Jesus if I ain't going to walk where he tells me to go. That's the scary thing I think about being a disciple. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I dare you to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and find anywhere that Jesus is going that's not painful, that's not going to the least, the last, and the lost. And I'd like to go to the country club or let's go to the beach with Jesus. He's always taking us where there's pain. And uh, it's tough to be a disciple, but there's nothing better. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you for the rain this week. Rain your grace down upon each of us that uh, we might freely open our arms and receive all that you want to pour into our lives. Make us men and women of prayer and your word and fervent worshipers. Anoint our pastors this morning, pour through them the gift of preaching, and open our hearts that we would not just receive their sermon, but they would bring your word home to us in a way that would be truly life-transforming.